This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, New York Times reporter Adam Nagurney discusses his book, The Times. He looks at the successes and failures of the last four decades of the paper of record, The New York Times. He's interviewed by Columbia Journalism Review contributor John Alsop. Adam, I'm sure if you asked most people to write a book on their place of work, uh, they would rather do just about anything else. So um, what induced you to to want to write a book about the Times? (laughs) Good question. First, thanks for having me on the show. Um, You know, I have always... Uh, admired and wanted to work for the New York Times since I was a student in college. And um, one of the books I read as as a college student, I think, or pretty early on, was Gay Talese's book of the Times. And it's something that I always thought about. The important, you know, you raise a really good point in your question. Um, I'm writing a history. So basically, this book goes from 1977 through 2016. Um, There are a bunch of advantages of that. Uh, For one thing, I'm not, for the most part, writing about people who are there, or to put it more directly, writing for people I work with or about. Few exceptions, but generally that's really the case. But more than that, in terms of approaching a project like this, there was a level of candor from the people that I was speaking to, because they were gone, and also access to documents that I don't think I would have if I was writing about the present. Um, If I was writing a contemporaneous book about the Times, I don't see a way to do it, while I was still working there. And I don't think I would want to do it, actually. I'm, I'm finding, as much as I expected, and maybe more so, that the benefit of time has really been critical in terms of assessing what is important, what matters, what doesn't, but also getting to the behind-the-scenes story of what was going on over these past 30, 40 years. Yeah. Um, obviously, you mentioned that it's, that it's a history and mostly doesn't concern people who are still at the paper and therefore your colleagues. But you are, of course, at times... Um, insider, you do work there. Um, right. You know, do you think that was a net advantage for you writing the book? Do you think, in some ways, you might have had an easier time if you were approaching it from the the vantage point of an outside reporter or, or researcher? How do you how do you sort of weigh the the you know advantages and disadvantages of that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, there are advantages in terms of knowing the people from the inside, having a sense of the culture. It's probably easier to get telephone calls returned. I think it helps that I haven't worked in the main office since, what, 2002. Um, I could see advantages of both sides. I think if you're coming from the uh, outside, it might be harder to get the cooperation I got. So when I first started this project, or first thought of it, the first thing I did was go to the publisher at the time, Arthur Salzberger Jr., and asked if he would talk to me, cooperate on a book like this. And yeah, I think he said, let me think about it. I think he got back to me in about a month. And what he said to me was, I had decided that I will cooperate with you. I will sit down and give you all the time you want and do the best I can with my memory and reconstructing the important events of these past decades. He said, but I'm not going to tell anyone else what to do. This is not an official Times book. You're on your own. You know, I don't expect everyone will talk to you. So, But what I learned, and John, what I should have probably realized at the time is that once the publisher agreed to talk to me, Pretty much everyone else did, right? Because they, you know, whether it was implicit or explicit, they wanted to be part of the project, tell their story, and you know, I don't mean to sound you know starry-eyed, but make sure the book was as complete and as good as possible. I'd like to think that. So as a result, pretty much everyone I wanted to talk to sat down, talked to me, and shared documents. Now. Would that have happened if I were an outsider? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, Gay Talese, when he did his book back in 69, 
he he had been at the paper for a bunch of years, and he left the paper afterwards. So he did it. That's the way he did it. He was already gone. He had a foot in both in both camps that way. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the the, the Gay to Least book as, as an inspiration for you. Um, I guess one thing I was curious about reading it is the the time span that you cover in the book um, starts more or less in in nineteen seventy six with the elevation of of Abe Rosenthal to executive editor and ends more mm-hmm. or less uh, in twenty sixteen with the election of Donald Trump. Um, you sort of mentioned, I guess, why it finishes. When it does, um, you know, you wanted to make this a history and not and not, um, you know, too much about current events, I guess. But, uh, you know, why did you sort of choose that aperture on on the whole? Why does it start in in 1976 specifically? I mean, Abe Rosenthal had already been in charge of the paper at that point for, you know, for a number of years, uh, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, albeit no, not you're right. Been, that's, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. he'd been <laughs> he'd been managing it or. Um, I, a couple of reasons. I wanted a manageable time frame. Um, Gates Lee's book ended in, I'm sorry for not remembering, I think it was 69. So I could have started in 69. Um, a lot of that stuff had been written about already, uh, Watergate, the Pentagon Papers. So it just seemed like a convenient bookend to start the book. But that that's a fair question. That's one you know I could talk about forever. I, I argue it both ways. I, the end of it, I think, was much clearer, a much firmer one to end it. So, but you know, the, like there was so much material, at some point I just had to sort of package it the way I could package it, so it was accessible and had a clear narrative and narrative arc. Yeah. You know, one thing I should um, say, I don't mean to jump ahead here. Um, when I started this book, because you just made me think of it, I I did not know how it would end. So remember, this is 2016 when I'm going around to various publishers, and the newspaper industry was really in major distress, and the Times was not doing well. So as it turned out there was a clean ending to this book, to the point that the paper made, I argue this book, the sort of adjustment from being um, a subscription-based, you know, advertising-based model to a subscription-based model. So, but I, if I, I cannot tell you that when I started this off, I knew that that's how it would end. I just kind of lucked, lucked into that. Yeah, uh, and I, I definitely want to come back and, and touch on that yeah, sort sorry, of yeah. um, digital transformation and, and business side um, you know, more, more recent business side stuff. Um, but, but I guess to say it's to stay in the past for just a moment. Yeah. Um, the book in some ways can be seen as kind of, a, a, you know, a book about a succession of, of executive editors of the paper and their relationship with the publisher with whom they work, but also with with the newsroom. And I guess in, in a sense with wider society, you know, the society the Times reaches out into with its journalism. Um and this is probably a cheeky question, maybe like asking you to pick your favorite child. So feel free to um, <laughs> feel free to fudge the answer, I guess. But what was there one who either, you know, you think was particularly important to, you know, the story of the times across the period that you're writing about or just one of the editors who you felt was particularly fun or, in, or engaging to write? about? Yeah, do I don't think? think I don't think it's a cheeky question at all. I think it's a great question. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of a politician's answer to it because different ones were interesting for different reasons. I know I sound like Bill Clinton, but um, so, for you know, for example, like um, Abe Rosenthal, the first one is a really interesting character. He is, on one hand, um, the last of a type. I mean, I would argue a really good journalist with you know, fine credentials and really good new sense. And to a large extent, a dedication to the times, but also very flawed. And I... I don't think that he could. I don't. I wouldn't even qualify it. He could not. He could not 
um, survived this era, given his the way he acted, the way he treated people, his views towards women, toward gay people, um, towards people of color. He just would not survive. But he's a great, big, colorful figure, and I think he's great that way. Um, I think that Dean Baquet, the most recent editor, is really interesting because he was ultimately the transitional editor. He was, uh, I think, 57 when he became executive editor, and he he was, in my opinion, smart enough to, if he didn't quite understand what people were talking about, wanting to do digitally, he said, let's just do it. He was very experimental. So he was really interesting that way. Um, sorry, I'm not, I'm not going to give you all seven of them. But, and then I thought Joe Lelyveld was, you know, and this will sound counterintuitive to some people who might have worked at the Times, was a really interesting example because he was really the last of an era. He was like the last one who I think was I mean, he might quarrel with us now, but resisting the advent of digital. And it was pretty clear, I would argue, that's where the paper was going. But he was old school, and he was a brilliant journalist, and he put out a really good paper. He was also, the other thing he was resisting was the change in standards. Uh, remember, this is Monica Lewinsky, and what kind of stuff do you put in the paper? Um, and he was sort of navigating that. And that was a very difficult time, and I think that he was a really interesting figure that way. Yeah. Um and am I right in saying that you spoke with all of the executive editors you cover in, in the book, with the exception of Rosenthal, who I think passed away in 2006? That's correct. Is that I right? Spoke, I spoke to all of them. Yeah. Rosenthal also, you know, I was helped by the fact, different world, right? He did extensive oral histories, and he had more files, and, you know, both his personal archives and the paper archives, um, to draw on. And he was very... Emotive, I guess. Is that, is that a fair word to use? So there was a lot of stuff, but he was the one person I didn't talk to. I spent hours with all the executive editors. Uh, they were incredibly generous with their time and let me just come back again and again and talk to them. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that, that they were generous with their time. You also mentioned, you know, that the, the sources you spoke with on the whole were very candid. I was sort of wondering how those conversations went, particularly with those executive editors, because you were. I, I don't, don't want to say you were passing judgment on their tenure as a critic necessarily, but obviously your account does offer, you know, strengths and weaknesses of their respective leaderships. You also, you know, in some cases more than others, I think it's fair to say, get into quite personal spats and dramas that they had behind the scenes, sometimes mm-hmm. with each other, but, but also, you know, with, with other colleagues of theirs. So, you know, what was it like sort of trying to prize those those stories, you know, out of people who, you know, while it was in the past, I'm sure I'm sure still have very strong views about about what happened in there and their place in it. I mean, time helps, right? So like not completely, I'll tell you why in a second, but as you get cl- more more recent executive editors, I think it was more difficult for them to relive painful passages. Um, someone like Hal Raines, who was executive editor from, I think, 20 to 2000 to 2003, I think, and that was before he was fired, I think that was a really traumatizing period of his life. Um, I think that there was enough distance that he was able to talk about it, mostly with, with some dispatch. Um, but it's hard. And, you know, I was very, very aware when I was talking to all of them that I was in the position that you... I think accurately described that, you know, here I am coming along as someone writing about their tenure, writing about their life, that obviously the ambition of this book was to be as comprehensive about the New York Times during this period as possible. So I I was very open-minded and also, you know, when going into sensitive stuff, very sympathetic that some of this stuff was very difficult. And, you know, some of it was really searing. Um, 
I, I hope that on all of them I provide, because none of them are good or bad, but I hope with all of them I provide a really balanced look at their lives and careers. But, but to your point, I, I was very aware and very sensitive about how difficult and uncomfortable this could be for some of them. Yeah. Beyond the, the personalities of the executive editors, one sort of interesting strand that I, that I saw running through the book was, um, you know, kind of this changing, I don't necessarily want to say role, but, but changing sources of power and legitimacy, I guess, for the executive editor over time from very mm-hmm. much coming from that individual's relationship with the publisher to being much more dependent on, um, you know, the the competence of the newsroom. Obviously, you see Howell Reigns, for example, really forced out um, because of the newsroom's uh, negative reaction to his management style and and handling of a series of of controversies under his tenure. Um, And then I think also you mentioned how in the Internet age, you know, any editor of any publication um, has some of their kind of agenda setting power stripped away because the Internet is this vast hubbub of, of noise and different news sources. I guess, how do you sort of see that that role of executive editor as having changed over time from, you know, where you, where you start the book to where you leave off? You know, I don't know whether I would have known or been able to answer this question um, when I first started this process. I completely think I can and understand what you're asking now. There's been, in so many ways, a huge change in what it means to be executive editor of the New York Times. Let's just take one example, right? This sort of more vocal newsroom, right? Like, it really began under Max Frankel um, in the 80s, right? I don't think that Abe Rosenthal would have put up with reporters challenging him as openly as reporters did to, to Max Frankel when the newspaper published the name of a woman accuser in a rape case involving the, the uh, uh, Kennedy, not, uh, the nephew of uh, Ted Kennedy. I think the nephew, as I recall. Um, and you could see the newsroom becoming more, I'm going to use the word empowered, more vocal. And that just became more and more the case. And um, I think the editors, executive editors, had to be more conscious of it. I don't think that uh, that Howell Reigns was. And I think the story of Howell Reigns, those chapters, really describe sort of Again, whatever brilliance he had as a news guy, right, the sort of breakdown of his position because he had antagonized the newsroom so much. And I think that if you want to be, you know, in the old days, if you want to be a great executive editor, you had to put out a great report, right? But you also have to get along with the publisher, right? Those are the two main things. But now it's a much more complicated and in some ways maybe less powerful job, right? Because you have to get along with the publisher. You have to get along with a more and more vocal newsroom. Um, You have to get along with this clamorous world that's the internet. You have to get along with the fact that you're being um, fly-specked on everything you did. So it's a much different job. And on one hand, as you suggest, it's a less powerful job. Uh, On the other hand, it's probably a much more difficult job. You know, again, I I don't think Abe Rosenthal would last six months in the job today. And that has nothing to do with his his abilities as a journalist, purely because of his personality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as is usually the case with with history, I guess um, there is that kind of story of, of that evolution, and, and obviously other things evolve over time um, at the paper. But you know, there's also some continuity in there as well. And I guess I kept being struck by little nuggets jumping out at me that really seemed to reflect stories that you see about the times today, or already just about the world of, of journalism today. You know, you note that 
um, covering Richard Nixon's White House, what you know sort of required a reinvention almost of political reporting, or at least a reconsideration of the old rules because you know they were so dishonest about a lot of what they were doing. Um, clearly, mm-hmm. that put me uh, in mind of, of Donald Trump and how he has kind of challenged the, the norms of, of political journalism. Um, you know, you mentioned sort of generational fractures in the Times' newsroom quite a long time ago that seem to echo, uh, you know, reporting that comes out of the paper now about about splits between um, older or younger or different groups of, of staffers. You know, how do you, were you sort of surprised to see some of those um, historical echoes when you were going through it? Was it something you, you kind of expected? How, you know, how, how did you sort of, how do you sort of um, find those, I guess? No, I did not expect it, to tell you the truth. I wasn't around then. So when, again, let's use the example of Frankel and publishing the name of the, of the, of the woman who accused the man of rape. Um, the newsroom just exploded. I mean, they had meetings, and you actually saw some cases where reporters were talking to reporters from other organizations. Now, if I say that to you, you're like, well, of course. But at the time, that was unthinkable, right? Like, people under the A. Rosenthal um, era would have been afraid to lose their jobs, I think. So you see hints of it early on. And I guess one of the subtexts of this history is the rising authority and vocalness of the newsroom. We can debate whether that's a good thing or not, but it is a thing, and it's something that very much defines the New York Times. And I think, you know, that's what's going on now, is you're trying to sort of manage how much role the newsroom and various reporters have and how it does the report. But that's been a constant theme all along, no question about it. Yeah. I do want to get onto, you know, a couple of more specific uh, stories that mm-hmm. were controversial or that, you know, play an important part in, in your book. But but just sort of to finish with this idea yeah. of, of, you know, the power of the editor and the dynamic between them and the newsroom, um, you know, it, it does sort of seem to me like you have this procession of editors who are not exactly, but sort of roughly by turns, quite radical in in ways they want to change the paper you know quite uh thrusting and bold and and daring but in ways that you know threaten to get away from them you know they they sort of overreach and cause themselves problems and then sometimes after that you see editors coming in who are a much steadier hand perceived as the kind of safe choice you know you're very well respected in the newsroom maybe better man managers but who um perhaps don't reach far enough are, are perceived as not going far enough to keep the times up with the times uh, as it were um was that a dynamic that you also sort of thought about when you were when you were writing this this kind of um you know dialectic almost between different editors dragging the paper forward but with problems so then you sort of have to take a step back how, how do you sort of assess that dynamic i guess I mean, I think that is what's going on. Let's do two examples. One is when Frankel, Max Frankel took over, he immediately said he was going to be the not Abe, right? Not Abe Rosenthal. So everything that Rosenthal did, he wasn't going to do. So he started socializing with reporters. He showed up at a, um, at a uh, baseball game and barbecue at a reporter's house on the Upper West Side. And reporters were sitting there talking and thinking like, that would never happen again, right? Um, you know, 20 years later, I guess, or 10 years later, after Howell Reigns, like, is forced out, you know, Bill Keller comes along. He's a much more mild-mannered uh, editor, and I think he was making a point of being less sort of divisive. Now, the other side of that, right, is that maybe, at least initially, those editors weren't as aggressive as, say, a Max Frank or an Abe Rosenthal. But this, this whole thing is about going one way, going the other, just trying to find the right sort of um, the right sort of tone for the newsroom and the paper. And I guess it's not surprising that, you know, an editor would come along, would really push the envelope, 
you know, and, and Howell Reigns was certainly one of those editors, and that maybe go too far, and that the next person would come back and pull it back a little bit. So you have to look at this thing. Like, so I cover seven executive editors. Obviously, you have to look at the continuum of how the paper changed and didn't change over those seven terms, right? But it's all, it's, at the same time, they're all different chapters, but they all, in the end, are one sort of big chapter of the New York Times, the modern-day New York Times. Yeah. Um, you described the, the paper at one point as uh, a muscle-bound company that held on to its dedication to a tradition at the cost of being slow to change. Um, I think you do sort of use the words institutionally conservative at, at one point to describe the times. And, and I guess that was something that sort of jumped out at me from a lot of the, the stories that you tell, um, you know, that it is a paper that does change a lot over the course of the period that you've written about, but often has to kind of follow the example of other news organizations and the example of adapting to the Internet or or in some other ways be be dragged kicking and screaming a little bit uh, and obviously one area where where that institutional conservatism is particularly acute that you write about is um you know in the times is uh in both internal diversity within the newsroom and then also um you know coverage of, of different communities you, you write for example about um woeful shortcomings in, in the paper's coverage of the aids crisis for example um could you sort of talk a little bit about that that kind of um you know, dynamic within the newsroom um, and, and how the Times sort of did fail um, in so many different chapters of your book when it came to, to that that goal of, of, you know, diversifying the newsroom. Yeah, I mean, the paper was essentially a conservative, small C, resistant to change organization. I think that has clearly changed over the past eight years. But that was very much the case. And those are two separate examples. Let me take both. You could see it in terms of the diversity of the newsroom. Um, you know, as early as 1969, I found the last publisher at the time, Punch Sulzberger, complaining about the fact that the newsroom was so overwhelmingly white and saying, I want to do something about this. And you read his message to the editors, um, this speech he gave, as I recall, and I believe him. I think he really believed it, right? That was what he, you know, believed in. But it didn't make a difference. The paper's sort of progress in um, in that, in sort of diversifying the newsroom, was really slow over decades, right? You know, Max Franklin comes in and he's like, okay, he institutes a one-for-one policy where for every one white journalist hired, there'd be a person of color hired, right? And he, but after six months, he was really frustrated because it just wasn't happening. And he was coming up against the resistance of these people, you know, the editors who would say like, you know, we don't want to make decisions based on that. We want to make decisions on based on who we think the best journalists are. I'm putting that in air quotes because that's obviously a contentious kind of way to look at the world. So it took a really long time. Um, and I think that goes to the nature of the paper and also nature of society. I I think on some things, the Times wasn't afraid to be second. <laughs> you know, not on big news stories necessarily, but on that kind of stuff. I need to just add to that that I think that the culture has changed dramatically there over the past five or six years. But that was absolutely the case for a long time. And, you know, I think you could blame society. You could blame the the conservatism of the times. You could blame elitism, right, which was very much defining the times in those early years. Um, The age thing is a slightly different example, which I'm happy to talk about. Um, I think it has to go very much with the fact that a lot of people, epitomized by Abe Rosenthal, were kind of threatened and uncomfortable with the homosexuality even before the AIDS epidemic came along in 1980, 1981. Um, and as a result, the paper was, and I don't think anyone would quarrel with this now, woefully slow in writing about this calamity that was taking place 
in its own backyard. Remember that, like, New York and San Francisco were the, and Los Angeles, to a lesser extent, were the cities where this was really hitting hard. And it was, I think, two years from when the Times first wrote the story about this mysterious epidemic, I almost said pandemic, epidemic that was breaking out mainly among homosexuals and intravenous drug users. I think that they knew that at the time before it became a front page story. And, you know, one thing Max Frankel did when he came in was say that we're going to change this. And he he basically said something to the effect of we're not going to be on the wrong side of history here. And he signed a bunch of people to keep to write about it. Now, um, Roosevelt's an interesting guy here. He um, you know, he when he came back from uh, overseas, one of the first stories he overseas assigned as the Metropolitan Editor was a story about the increasing uh, visibility of gay people on the streets of New York. But, you know, I came across, you know, I was going through old documents. I came across an old private diary he wrote that was over in the public library. I don't know how it ended up there. But, you know, we talked about people asked me, you know, whether or not I would hire a, a homosexual for a, a prominent job. He goes, I would not hire a homosexual reporter to cover. And, and John, this is from my memory, which two examples, but this is basically right. The White House and the State Department, I would have them cover culture and, you know, fashion, right? Um, he said the reason for that is that homosexuals form cliques in the newsroom, and that's very dangerous to the sort of, uh, you know, spirit of the newsroom. So this was very interesting because, like, for years people had speculated that Rosenthal, A. Rosenthal, was homophobic, right? And like, I mean, I guess you could say people thought that you could judge him by the way he directed the coverage. But when you find this private diary and when he's talking about it, he's saying in his own words, and I think it helps you understand the paper's real slowness and timidity in covering, you know, this huge crisis that swept across the country in the early 1980s. Yeah. Obviously, I'm I'm one of those tedious people who has a social science degree, and and you know political scientists talk about uh, actors and, and institutions, and you know which are more determinative in, in sort of shaping political change, and, and obviously just to a large extent the answer is usually both. But sort of interested, um, you know, in those moments where the Times has been sort of institutionally conservative whether you think it's kind of preponderantly because of the attitudes of the people in charge, as you, as you were just sort of mentioning uh, in the example of, of, of AIDS coverage um, and, and those related things, um, or whether there is something, you know, about the times as an institution um, that has kind of contributed to a sense of, you know, inertia or, or stasis or being difficult to, you know, turn on a dime. It, it, a sense comes across, I guess, reading your book that, you could almost compare it to a big ship, right? It's it's huge right. and obviously has a kind of um, very um, prominent role both within the journalism world and, and society. Um, yeah, and, and it's and obviously, you know, with a very big ship, that is something that doesn't necessarily have a very adroit turning circle. So I guess I'm just you know, curious if you, if you sort of think there is something about the Times as an institution that has, you know, contributed to that dynamic rather than just um, it being a result of the people in charge. I do. Um, I think I might even use a phrase comparing it to a ship. It's very slow and it's very hard to turn around. But part of it is also its self-regard. And I'm not putting that in a kind of I'm not putting it down. Just what it is. Right. It views itself as sort of this 
or, or did, not, not so much anymore, is this arbiter of society, an arbiter of journalistic norms, of societal norms. And, you know, the, as you know, the sort of DNA of a newspaper is you want to be first on stuff, right? You want to break the story first, you know, whatever it is, right? But I think on some stuff it was comfortable not being first. I think it was comfortable not being first on AIDS coverage or on some diversity coverage. And part of that is because it had this sort of, you know, rarefied view of itself and its role in society. Um, and I think you're right, part of it has to do with the people who were there, but the other part of it was just the way it viewed itself. And other organizations, you could see this through all kinds of stuff, including the transformation di- to digital. Other organizations moved comparatively a lot more quickly. And that is just because the Times is a big conservative, again, small c, organization that I think was wary of change or change too fast. Now, now, one thing I discovered, which I didn't know coming into the book, is I don't want to say it was completely change-resistant, right? Like, one of the earliest things we talk about is how in the 1970s, when the paper was facing, you know, an economic calamity is too strong a word, but problems, right? People were moving to the suburbs from New York City. Advertising was off the cliff. They began to create this sort of food section and culture section, all these sections that we all kind of know today, that was kind of a big thing for the time. I mean, the Times liked the idea of being these two, like, I guess, ACOM, really gray, boring newspaper. And so all of a sudden, you know, there was a front page of, like, the dining or food section, whichever it was called at the time, with a big picture of a pickle across the top, right? And I think that it says something about Arthur Sulzberger Sr., Punch Sulzberger, that he was willing to do that. I mean, Abe Rosenthal resisted that because it was like this is going across uh, against the standards of what he sees as the New York Times. But I think he, I don't think, you can see in his memos, he began to realize that he needed to do this just to survive with the publisher. And after it was all done, the publisher was like, I love this stuff. I don't know why we didn't do it sooner. The lesson here is because looking back now, John, those aren't you know, those don't seem like the biggest changes in the world, but it does show that the paper at least had some ability to change, but certainly not as much as any other kind of, you know, major newspaper or organization in this country. Yeah. And uh, just quickly, um, unlike the, the hulking ship of the New York Times, your ship metaphor obviously sailed uh, into my head <laughs> so elegantly that I thought it was my own idea. So apologies for <laughs> No, no, it's fine. You know, it's funny. I, I can't, I can't recall whether I left that illusion in the book or not, but that idea is certainly there. So, either way, okay, that's well, it came it's perfect. A, it sailed across uh, okay. very clearly. Um, <laughs> and I mentioned uh, tortured ship puns aside, um, uh, that I wanted to sort of uh, move over to some of these individual stories and, and episodes yep. um, that that you know were really um, markers uh, of of the times as history as you tell it in the book. Um, on, on the sort of editorial side. And um, two of those that you dedicate a lot of space to that are super interesting, of course, were the uh, Jason Blair uh, plagiarism and, and falsification scandal, um, and obviously also the coverage of the war uh, in Iraq, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in places was uh, overly credulous and, and sort of boosterish of the administration's case for war. Um, yep. And I think you note that... Um, you know, Arthur Salzberger, the publisher at the time, later said that, you, you know, of, of that period when those you know, those two scandals, I guess, were roughly contemporaneous, it was the Blair one that, that hurt the paper more reputationally. But you seem to disagree with that and think it was probably the Iraq scandal that either did the most damage or, or revealed the kind of bigger 
flaw at the times, uh, unless I'm unless I'm reading you wrongly. But could, could you sort of no, talk you about are you writing me you read me correctly. I, I gave that a lot of thought. I mean, I, maybe this is an argument I shouldn't engage, uh, but I I think I disagree with the publisher about that. Like Jason Blair mm-hmm. was enormously damaging. Just for viewers who might not know, uh, he was a reporter who came along and he just invented stories out of whole cloth for whatever. It's in the book. You'll read about why. We had substance problems and just, I mean, you know, it just invented stories out of all cloth. And when they started investigating him and began looking at his work, they realized that there were tons of them, right? And it was, I mean, I think it was pathological. It just was. And it showed, um, you know, the paper, like, always kind of assumed you could trust your reporters. And I think our readers, the paper's readers, always assumed that they could trust the newspaper. So, that's what I think Arthur Salzberger Jr. is talking about when he talks about how damaging it was. And I do think it took years for the Times to get past that. I mean, there was a long time when you would turn on David Letterman, the talk show host here, and they would be making jokes about Jason Blair. Or if you were out reporting a story and somebody wanted to discredit you, they would say, you're just another Jason Blair. The thing about the war is that I think the stakes were higher, right? And I think that that has fed a long-term mistrust. I don't want to overstate this, right? Because obviously I think people tend to trust the Times and stuff. But mistrust of the Times on the extent to which they're going to, you know, uh, carry or repeat the administration line. I mean, some of those stories were exactly as you said. They they were either wrong or just too boosterish. And for whatever reason, and I just I think that still is coloring the way a lot of people see the times today. I mean, the fact of the matter is, like, the times, like, in the early... Like, I think if you had Arthur Punch Salzberger here, well, you wouldn't be alive, either would I, but um, he would not completely quarrel with the idea of the times almost being... I, I don't want to overstate this. Part of the government or near... You know what I mean? They were sort of part of the same, what we used to call growing up, the establishment. Um, and I think that's probably not a good thing. And, and I think the Washington Post sort of began to break that with its Watergate coverage. I think now the media has generally really broken that. But the Iraq coverage, which seemed to promote what turned out to be, if not untruths, uh, distortions about the war that was being pushed by the George Bush 43 administration, I think really damaged the paper. And I think that we still, to some extent, pay a price for that. Even though, I mean, the paper, the paper changed. The reporter who was at the center of that, Judy Miller, left the paper. I think the paper is much more scrupulous um, in terms of reporting those kind of stories. But I don't know. I think that was kind of a, a big deal. I mean, I spent a lot of time on that in the book. I spent a lot of time on Jason Blair in the book because I think they're both really big events, right? But, I, you know, if you ask me, I, I think that ultimately Iraq was more damaging. Yeah, I think as you say, you know, Jason Blair looks like a really huge, damning, basic failure. But at some level, you know, when you're working in even an institution as big and powerful as the New York Times, relationships do, I guess, have to be based on trust. And if someone just completely, yeah, you know, refuses to accept that that kind of basic compact, then to some level, they'll probably always be able to perpetuate some kind of wrongdoing. Whereas I think you make the case that the failures that led up to the Iraq war were more routine and more, um, you know, within within the, the paper's kind of organizational principles and structures than than a sort of, you know, freak one-off attack coming from, from 
someone well outside them, if that if that makes sense. That makes sense. And also much more damaging, right? The, the repercussions of the war in Iraq, right? Whatever, the, however much you want to make the Times part of why it happened, are huge. I talked to one editor who was, um, who was responsible for disciplining Jason Blair, and he said, you know, um, he says, we had this manual, right? We have all these rules and stuff, but we have no rules against somebody making stuff. He didn't use the word stuff, but you can guess what I mean. I guess somebody making stuff up. And I sat there and I thought, yeah, like at that point, I think it was so, I mean, obviously you had Janet Cook, but I think it was so out of like the range of possibilities. Like everyone was kind of shocked by it. And that to some extent is oversimplifying. I mean, I think that Jason was a very aggressive reporter and he did, he was good at doing what editors liked and he was hungry and he was always, not always, but often on the phone and willing to do stuff. That fed into it as well. But, you know, ultimately, like, you know, I think if you're an editor on the desk and it's nine o'clock at night, these are back when you had print deadlines and you're looking at a story and a quote seems like a little bit too good to be true. Well, at that point, you wouldn't think that it is good to be true. You'd think, hey, this reporter is reporting from Midland, Texas, and he says he's there and he's quoting the family. So, of course, it's true. Well, I don't think that would happen today. But again, there was something about the Jason Blair thing that seemed more individual than systematic. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think that was what I was was getting at, of course. To some extent, they're both both. Um, just a, a final question on on the Iraq War front, because yeah. while you do clearly show that some of the coverage, as you say, was was wrong or, or boosterish or both, um, you do take a, a sort of nuanced position around what that coverage was like. I mean, as someone who um, wasn't following the New York Times' coverage at the time, because I was like 11, I think, um, and, in, and in England, um, probably didn't know what the New York Times was. <laughs> um, but, but I was interested to read, uh, yeah, as someone who sort of looked back on that coverage but wasn't you know, reading it at the time, um, you know, that initially Howell Reigns, who had previously been the editorial page editor and was the executive editor by then, had actually, it, it was actually facing accusations of kind of being, uh, you know, too anti-intervention, um, I guess the insinuation there, given the sort of heightened um, security climate after 9-11 was he was being un- unpatriotic. Um, I guess, yeah, talk, talk about some of those sort of nuances in how you found that coverage going back to look at it. Because I guess among among many critics, the sort of ossified, simplified narrative now is is that the coverage was kind of one big pro-Bush administration failure. But but you, you paint a richer picture. Yeah, I think that you, I think you make a really important, important point here, which is the context of the time, right? Like, We'll come back to Howell Reigns in a second. That's also a good point. But, like, this is after September 11th, and there was a expectation, right, that everyone was patriotic and we're all on the same side and we're not going to do anything to, you know, damage the country, you know, damage our national security. I mean, our country had been attacked, right? So I think that was very much in the head of everyone in the New York Times, and I think that probably influenced coverage for three or four, maybe five years. I mean, you can really kind of track it before the paper, and all papers, I don't think it's just true of the New York Times, sort of got its bearings right. This was difficult, right? This was really um, challenging. And I guess from the paper's perspective, even though other people didn't get this right, right, why would the administration lie about the threat of WMD, weapons of mass destruction, um, that could once again put the U.S. at risk? So, you're putting yourself in Howell's position, um, Howell Reigns' position, I kind of get it, right? Like, I'm not, I mean, I hope I provided a nuanced uh, account to this because it's a human drama involving human, human editors and publishers and reporters who are just trying to figure out a very difficult 
and scary time. I mean, without making it too personal for him, he lived down in the West Village, right? He lived on, I think, on 10th or 11th Street. That's like a mile, maybe a mile and a half away from where those buildings collapsed, right? The two World Trade Center buildings. Um, when he left his bill, when he left his office, he left his apartment that morning. He looked back over his shoulder as he as he jumped into a cab, and he could see like I guess the sm- I, I was living down there too, so I remember what, what it looked like: the smoke in the air and the helicopters and just. The uns, like it was ungraspable the horror. It was just really you're not really trained to understand what was going on. So I think that's important perspective for him. Um, the other thing, and this is a kind of a different issue, but you know, Howell Reigns, as you said, came from being the editorial page editor to become the executive editor, as did Max Franco. Like I always thought there was a little bit of complicated. Like I don't think that should be disqualifying, but that's complicated because you have spent the past whatever six or eight years giving your opinions and all of a sudden you're supposed to come in and, you know, run a news news department without giving your opinions, right? Or not even having opinions that you're sharing. And I think that that's an, a difficult adjustment. And, you know, Howell's, Howell Reigns' editorials, which you write about in the book a lot, you know, he was a hell of a writer and he could write really powerfully and he wrote really, really evocative uh, editorials. I mean, go back and look at his uh, editorial about Robert McNamara having lied about the war in Vietnam. I mean, it was just I mean, the words will just stick with you forever. So I, you can understand where a reader, you know, or, or someone who buys or follows the New York Times would say, hey, this guy who had such strong opinions running the editorial page is all of a sudden running the news department. Why should we not think that's influencing the way he's running the news department? That's a fair question. I mean, that's, I think it's one of the things that you think about. And, but, you know, again, there's a history of editorial page editors who work really close with the publisher uh, becoming executive editors as well. Yeah, and I, I wanted to ask about that, but just um, yeah. to follow up on, on the previous point very quickly, do you think that uh, in that in that kind of coverage of Iraq that did turn out to be credulous and, and boosterish, that there was any sense of a, a sort of overreaction on how overcorrection, I should say, on Howell Reigns' part to the perception that he was, you know, I guess squishy in the eyes of of neocon pundits? Um, I. I do think the answer to that is yes. I was, I was just pausing because I was trying to think how he would argue if he was here. I do think the answer was yes. And I'm trying to put myself, and I did in the book, into the reality of the situation he was dealing with at the time. And, you know, initially, you know, you, it, this is all sketched out here, right? Like, the paper had written some very tough, skeptical stories about Iraq. And it had been attacked by, among others, Dick Cheney, who was the vice president at the time. There was a lot of incoming coming in, and a lot of people that were sort of accusing the paper of being biased the other way. And do I think that that influenced, to some extent, how Reigns thinking and some of the other people's thinking and how to approach the coverage? Yeah. I mean, I think that's pretty clear when you read the book and you look at it. Um, you know, I keep thinking, like, what would I do in this situation? It was a scary, difficult time. But clearly, you know, they went too far in the other direction, and they were to believing us some of the stories, not all the stories, but some of the stories that Judy Miller was writing out of Iraq and out of Washington, D.C. Yeah. Um, to go back to that that sort of strange divide you mentioned between the newsroom and the editorial pages, just kind of more broadly, I mean, mm-hmm. the Times and, and journalists who work there have uh, sometimes very frustratedly been keen to make the point on social media in the past that, <laughs> you know, the opinion writers don't represent the newsroom and, and vice versa, that there is some kind of firewall there. Um, but the reality has always struck me as a bit more complicated. And, and yeah, it was very interesting to read in the book that, um, you know, the editorial pages were 
you know, see, kind of seen as training wheels almost for the for the top job in the entire newsroom on on more than one occasion. Um, yeah, how do you, how do you sort of approach that? Because on the one hand, yeah, I guess showing that you are capable of running a whole sort of mini fiefdom within the paper before running the whole thing makes sense on a kind of managerial level, but it does expose your views. Uh, you know, pretty widely, as you just mentioned. So, yeah, how, how do you, how, you know, I, I guess, to what extent was your view of that sort of divide between the news and opinion sections changed or, or how did it evolve while you were writing the book and, and doing the research? So, I, I w- if you had asked me this before I wrote the book, I don't think I could answer that question. Um, this is one of the things I sort of figured out as I was watching it go on. The newsroom and the, there's always been this wall, and you're right, it's porous, but this wall between the newsroom and the editorial page and the editorial page is on a different floor and you know people reporters are a little bit wary about socializing with members of the board or executive the head of the editorial page but there's always some inter- interaction right and like the columnists and the editorial writers and the ed- and the head of the editorial page obviously want to be able to draw on reporters to understand stuff and to write informed editorial so it's kind of complicated, but you will, you'll find reporters who are often um, very wary. Uh, I'll tell you one anecdote that's was not in the book, though, frankly, you may be thinking of it if I thought of it, I would have put it in the book. Um, Bill Sapphire, remember him? He was a big deal conservative mm-hmm. columnist of the Times. And uh, when the New York Times was doing covering the convention in, you know, if I told you which convention it was, I would be lying to you because I've been to so many, I forget. But it was a convention. And you had this morning meeting of all the editorial staff, excuse me, all the newsroom staff. And uh, Bill Sapphire showed up one morning, right, at this meeting. And one of the reporters there, David Rosenbaum, raises his hand and says, Bill Sapphire should not be here. He's a member of the editorial board, you know, a columnist of the New York Times. This is a news meeting. There's a line between these two sections and he should go. And Bill left, right? I always thought that was very, very sort of revealing, right? Um, but the other part of this, as you pointed out, right, when Howell Rains when Arthur Salzberger Jr. asked Howell Raines to become his editorial page editor, Raines at first resisted because he's a newsroom guy. Like, I think he didn't even read the editorials that closely, and he wanted to run the newsroom. But as he talked to Arthur and he thought about it, he realized when you're the end of the editorial page, uh, you're dealing with the publisher multiple times a week, right? You're consulting with him on editorials. You're um, inviting him to these big lunches and dinners with these, you know, big newsmakers who are coming in, presidents and stuff. So you have a lot of interaction with um, with the publisher. And it's the publisher who decides who the next executive editor is going to be. So in the sort of, I don't mean this to sound crass because it's just the way the world works, but that is just a really good way to position yourself to become the next executive editor. And I think taking nothing away from Howell Raines' journalistic credentials or his credentials as, edit- as the editorial page editor, and same with Max Frankel, the same thing happened. I think they were both very, very aware of that. And um, I think that's one of the reasons they became executive editors, because the, uh, the publisher at the time, the publishers at the time, were able to observe them close up and decide, do we want this person for this job? So it's complicated. Yeah. And also, yeah, like... I need to talk away. And the lines okay. these days are the lines over the years have drawn have sort of dropped a little bit between what's editorial and what's a news story. And reporters are encouraged more to have um, a point of view, not an opinion. You see, you know the difference. My, what, what I mean by that, a point of view in a story. Stories have more edges. It's harder to sort of distinguish between 
what's on the news pages and what's on the editorial pages. And you can see various papers try to deal with that and how they package or present the stories and the editorials and the columns on their websites or on their newspapers. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and of course, you know, the advent of the, the internet has kind of disaggregated the newspaper as a product and, and opinion and news content and everything in between sort of floats yep. atomized on, on the web, um, which leads as a, as a not at all uh, contrived segue into uh, the next question I was going to ask, which was about the internet. Um, and you mentioned at the beginning, of course, um, you know, the Times has become this incredible digital success story. You know, it's a real, it's a global multi-platform empire with the athletic and wordle and crosswords and, and cooking and, and a you know world-class app um but your book really Wire details Don't forget Wirecutter. sorry yeah yeah and that as well um and it's uh, yeah <laughs> certainly not an exhaustive not an exhaustive list on my part but um yeah your book really details how that you know there were teething troubles on on the way to that digital future how it was not really the case that the times was the kind of mobile startup-ish pioneer in this space you know that it was it was a process to get there Right. 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 I mean, it took a long time. I mean, there's a couple of different things that happened. One was the implementation of a paywall. Right. Um, the paper tried it twice. And and I think a point was reached um, when they just Arthur Schultzberger Jr. realized the paper's not going to survive unless it gets a, you know, a sort of regular source of revenue. And what had just happened, there had been another economic downturn. And he walked into the office of Martin Niesenholz, who was the head of the digital operation, and said, you know, I have to talk to you about this. You know, if this is another turndown like this, I'm going to have to lay off a third of the newsroom. And I don't want to have to keep doing that every time there's a shift in the economic cycles of the country, right? You know, we need to think about different ways to raise money, which means we need to start charging for content. And as you probably know, there was a long resistance in the digital world. You know, information should be free, right, to charging for this. But I think they realized that was the thing to do. And it took years to get it right. The first time they did it, um, it didn't work. They had to kind of abandon it. But the second time it did work, and I think that they were, I didn't think I know, they were stunned when they implemented the paywall and began charging you know, it was a little bit more than a nominal fee. It was a real fee for people to get access to a decent amount of, of a content. They were stunned by how many people began signing up right away. And I think, what are we up to now, 10 million subscribers? I don't think they ever would have, uh, ever would have um, expected that. The, the change in the, I use the word product advisedly because it seems not fitting for a news organization, but the change in the product has taken time. And I think, you know, other organizations were ahead of the paper, the Times at Times, but I think the Times is really, you know, in terms of the way it presents news, um, visually, orally, uh, interactively, the different kinds of services, it's just been a stunning, <laughs> stunning change. And I wonder, you know, were Abe Rosenthal alive today, if he was to look at the New York Times.com product, the app, would even begin to recognize what it was from what he remembers from 40 years ago. It's, it's, it's been a huge transformation. And, excuse me, in a weird way, as it was going on, like, it's slow, right? There's stops and starts, and it runs up against the institutional conservatism. And, you know, you'll see in the, in the book, there's editors early on saying, this is ridiculous. We don't think this is ever going to happen. Why are we wasting our time on this? But it feels inevitable. And it's not, by the way, it's not only generational, it's not only younger people who come into the newsroom, it's also some really smart people who saw, looked at the future and realized where things were going. And I think realized how exciting a digital New York Times could be, or just say, I don't want to say the New York Times, a digital news organization could be and saw the way things were going. And 
the paper put money into it and resources into it. You know, you can see it, you know, every day. Yeah. And some of my favorite scenes in the book were very much, you know, the <laughs> sort of uh, stuffy old newsroom side to stereotype um, and their interactions with the kind of uh, younger digital renegades, I think was, was one of the words you used for them. Um, yeah. You, you write, um, you write of, of, of Dean Baquet's editorship, something I found interesting, which was uh, saying that the newspaper would go through a storm of change and experimentation as it tried to distinguish what it did in the name of habit and tradition from the essential values that, that define the times. Um, and, and that was a quote that really jumped out to me because I've heard, uh, I've heard Dean Baquet sort of talk about that before, but in the context of kind of editorial philosophy and, and objectivity, you know, trying to work out what is, I think, in, in his words, core and what is um, right. and what is you know, something we're just doing and maybe we can do it better. Um, so the unbelievably difficult question for you out of that is, you know, I guess after after literally writing the book on The New York Times, what do you see? What do you sort of see as core New York Times values? What is what is the sort of core identity of the paper? Um you know, that, that sort of holds all the way through the story you're telling, even though so much of what passed for tradition and habit and, and um, you know, um, just just what the Times was, was kind of doing, you know, fell by the wayside and the paper transformed itself. You know, I think what the core is and will continue to be and probably should be um, is just writing about the real writing or presenting talking about the really important events and characters and the things people need to know to understand the world around them i sound like a you know advertisement or something but i i do think that's really important that to me that's what i think dean Becke was talking about um that's what the paper needs to keep doing now the thing that's really important here which i think he got because he's a transitional editor in my opinion right um is that you can't not try other things even if they don't work right so like Wordle, for example, doesn't remotely fall into that definition I just gave you, but obviously people like it, and I don't think, I mean, people could argue with me, but I don't think it violates what the Times stands for. So it's that plus Wordle. But there's other things the paper could do, you know, that might, I don't I can't think, I'm sure, give me a minute, I can think of one, they just don't work. They try and just, like, don't work. Experiments that don't work, but I think as long as you remember that core that Dean was talking, Beck A was talking about, and then experiment beyond that, that's the way forward. The other point that Becquet was making, because um, I, I, you definitely fixed, fixed, fixed on what I think is a critical uh, argument here, a point here, a pivotal point here, is that the stuff the paper used to do out of obligation, um, you know, go cover a member, this is like, not maybe sure it's a real example, but you'll see what I mean. Go cover a meeting of the zoning board, I'm not sure if the Times ever covered a zoning board, but of a city council because the city council's meeting. And I think Becky would argue, and most people would agree, the paper doesn't have enough resources to do it and there's no reason to do it. And people can get that kind of like routine news coverage, news coverage in quotes, anyplace else now. So that's the kind of thing that I think he wants to he wants to shed away. I think the paper has succeeded in shedding away. It's like you ultimately have limited resources and focus them on doing the things that make the paper as great as it can be. So that would include the core stuff that I was talking to you a minute ago, but also, you know, I mean, I would, I would include cooking, right, which has obviously been a big success for the paper, right? This, it doesn't, I don't think that, say, for example, doing cooking in addition to that stuff in any way undercuts what the Times is about. And, even 
taking this back 40 years, I'm not good on decades, Dave Rosenthal, who resisted initially some of these special sections, but ultimately came to think, hey, we could do these special sections, including one on cooking, right? And it doesn't take away from the paper at all, right? It's still the New York Times. Where they did draw the line, by the way, Arthur Schultzberger, like comics, no way. I used to say, I don't want to see comics in the newspaper, which I think is now changing, by the way. Mm. Just uh, one one final question then, which is, I mean, your book is a terrific sort of institutional history, and there are so many great characters who just jump right off the page. Um, but you also write at one point that the stories of the players are rarely as important as the story of the organization itself. Um I guess, like, what in a nutshell for you is the story of the New York Times as as an organization, or, or you know, put it put, to put it a different way. I guess, what does this institutional history kind of mean in the context of you know the world that the New York Times inhabits, the the journalistic industry that the New York Times inhabits as well? So, the reason I said that is I you know I'm a reporter, right? I used to work at the Daily News. Like, I like flashy, you know, shiny shiny object stories, right? And I think that. The characters and their foibles and their victories and their personalities, to some extent, are really important to understanding the times. And also, they, I think they really, I hope, they really enliven the narrative here, right? But I didn't want to lose fact, track of the fact that, lose track of the fact that ultimately this book is about the New York Times. And it's about this institution that has somehow managed to go through numerous transformations transformations and continues to be a primary source of information and, you know, hopefully credibility. We should come back to this in five years um, for the country. And I, so I was trying to be very careful not to let the shiny object get in the way of the bigger story. And that ultimately, this is a story about the New York Times. The, I think one of the lessons of like, for example, Howell Raines, again, I, or Jill Abramson, right? I think both brilliant journalists, right, getting pushed out, right, is that there was someone else there, right? Like, there are layers and layers of talent, you know, at the paper, right? And, you know, I keep telling people, like, these people work at the New York Times and it go kind of goes to their heads. And I keep telling, you know, right now you're Adam McGurney of the New York Times. When you leave the New York Times, like, somebody else is going to fill that spot. You are defined by where you work. And, I tried to keep that in mind, right? Like, one of the things about the Times is that there's so much talent and, you know, uh, uh, screwed upness there that you got to be careful not to just make this about the people, which obviously make it an interesting story, an interesting history, but also about this institution as well. Yeah. Adam Nagurney, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Afterwards podcast. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books That Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact. This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about Books That Shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.